because we're working through a number of uh, verses each week, I won't read them all in the beginning, but I'll read them as we go through. So we'll touch on all of them. But first, I want to open uh, simply by praying and asking for the Lord's help. Father and God, we do come before you. We ask for your help. We ask that your spirit would be upon us here in this room. Yeah, we ask that your spirit would be upon on Children's Church. We ask that your spirit would be with those who are with us from a distance. We thank you, Lord, that you are not confined to one place. You're not confined at all. Because of that, we know that you can speak even to us, even in our hard-heartedness or at times our inability to hear, that you can speak to our hearts and, and break through the noise and the barriers and your word can move us and make us alive. So we pray that that's what would happen this morning as we come before you. Make us alive by your word, we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard of what is known as the Philosopher's Stone? If you're a Harry Potter fan, you might recognize that. The U.S. version of the first book of Harry Potter was called the Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, I believe. But in the U.K., it was called the Philosopher's Stone. But I'm not talking about the Harry Potter thing. In history, there's something called the Philosopher's Stone. What the Philosopher's Stone was kind of scientists and alchemists in centuries past were looking for the Philosopher's Stone, which is this mythical substance as far as I understand, I might get this wrong, but as far as I understand, the Philosopher's Stone is a, this substance they're looking for that could change metals, that could convert normal, regular metals like lead or mercury into something precious and valuable like silver or gold. Some magical substance that could convert metals. It was thought that uh, certain metals, uh, actually all metals are really kind of the same substance, but just some was impure and some was pure. And it's thought that the kind of the basic metals were impure, but if they're purified by something, by heat or whatever, that you could convert them into the pure metals like silver or gold, that's which was more valuable. And of course, we know that's impossible. Uh, we now in our modern science understand that you can't just convert one substance to another. Although... Though actually you can, what we found now through nuclear chemistry is that you can actually, by uh, the, the voodoo of nuclear power, can just supercharge things by blasting protons into the nucleus of an atom and changing the number of protons, thereby changing the metal. So we actually found that you can convert other metals into gold. It's just not a good money-making scheme. It's far more costly to do that than the value of the gold you produce. So that aside... Before nuclear physics, how could you change something? Well, you, you, you can't. People searched for it for centuries in alchemy. How can we convert things into silver or gold? And we know you can't just magically turn lead into gold, just like you can't turn water into wine. And we get to, in John 2, one of Jesus' most famous miracles, the conversion of water into wine. And it's such a brilliant, simple display of Jesus' divine power, its miracle. But the important part of it is, why? Why did Jesus do it? Why did he turn water into wine? For what purpose, what reason, and what does it show us? The book of John has within it a number of signs. John makes a point of, 
showing a number of signs that point to who Jesus is. As Jesus does miracles, performs signs, they're meant to point to who Jesus is. Just like a, a sign on the road, a traffic sign, the importance of the sign is what it points to, right? So the importance of a stop sign is not necessarily the red octagonal shape or anything like that. The importance of a stop sign is what it points to. Hey, there's traffic going the other way. You should stop. The point of a sign is what it points to. And that's the point of Jesus' signs. It's not so much the miracles in and of themselves, but what do they point to? What do they tell us about Jesus Christ, these miracles that he's performs these signs. And that's what we're going to get into today as we begin to explore Jesus' signs as John explores them. We'll see that the signs of Jesus prove he is God's Son and our Savior. That's our summary statement for today. If I was to summarize all of chapter 2, as we begin to look at the signs of Jesus, here's a simple summary statement. The signs of Jesus prove he's God's Son and our Savior. That's what the signs point to. That's what we need to know That's what we need to believe as we interact with these signs. They prove that Jesus is the Christ, and that if we believe in him, we too will have life in his name. I want to walk through this passage in three sections. So first what I'm going to do is I'm going to work through the three sections that there are in this passage and give you three main ideas that summarize each section, one main idea for each section. And then after that, we'll talk about what do we learn about Christ from this? What are some truths about Christ? And then we'll close by thinking about a couple application points. What grace is there for us? Grace for us. Because of what we've learned. So first, let's walk through the text in three sections, in three main ideas for each section. The first section, verses 1 through 12, this is his, uh, Jesus' miracle of water into wine in Cana. And first, in verses 1 through 12, we see the wedding sign shows his glory. I think that's the first Main idea here, the wedding sign shows his glory. That's what the sign points to. It points to the glory of Jesus. The wedding sign shows his glory. Verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. So Mary, Jesus, and his disciples go to a wedding. And that's not the beginning of a joke, it's the beginning of a miracle. We don't know for sure, it seems 
this is my guess that Mary had the closest connection to this wedding, that she was there as the closest connection, and then Jesus has her son and his disciples with him. Uh, we're not sure exactly why they're all there, but they're invited to this wedding. Weddings at the time were a little bit different. Those of you who are planning a wedding now, just consider this. Weddings there would last for days. The celebrations would last for days, if not up to a week of celebrating as new guests came in over the course of the days, all kind of celebrating and feasting together. And it was the groom's responsibility in this culture and this time to provide for the wedding, the food and the drink. It was on him, it was on the bridegroom to make sure that all were cared for. In fact, there's some documentation that suggests that it was even a legal responsibility. That part of the contract of the wedding may have involved provision for the wedding feast. So to not provide would have been a breach of contract. Not only shameful to not be able to provide for the feast, but even a breach of contract, a legal failure. In disasters, disasters, that's exactly what happens. They run out of wine at the wedding. So Mary goes to Jesus. It seems she has the expectation that Jesus will do something about this. I hesitate to ask this. You don't have to raise your hand. Do any of you have nosy mothers? Or mothers who just want to make things happen for you? If you've been single for a while, hey, I gave your number to the guy at the grocery store. He seems like a good man. That kind of mom who just wants to make things happen for you, help you along. I submitted your application to that. Yeah. Mary here seems to be trying to make something happen. You know the whole song, Mary, Did You Know? The answer to a lot of those questions is yes. I won't go through the whole list. You know, some are questionable. But for the most part, Mary knew who Jesus was. The sign of not having a physical, biological father, that's a, that's a big tip-off. Angel had given her a visitation. It's like she knew Jesus was special, right? And she may have been trying to insert Jesus into the scene and say, hey, it's time to be the Messiah. It's time to kind of let people know who you are. Maybe you can do something. It's a little bit of speculation on my part, but I think by Jesus' reaction and what he says, it's safe to assume that Mary, knowing who Jesus is, is trying to involve him and make him get involved. And he responds with surprising disaffection. Um, if I had responded to anything this way in my own home, it would not have gone well. Right, reread that. Woman, why do you involve me? Try saying that to your mom. Woman. Truth be told, in English, it sounds worse than it does in Greek. In, in English, it sounds disrespectful, but that's not how it sounds in the Greek. It's more respectful, but at the same time, it's not also a warm term. Jesus isn't referring to his mom affectionately here, really at all. It's very matter of fact. It's respectful. It's not overly warm. The question is why? Like, what's behind this interaction? Why do you involve me? Something 
in the relationship of Jesus with his mother is going to have to be clarified here. In fact, in the scriptures, whenever you see Jesus interacting with Mary, there's often some distance that Jesus is trying to place there. Who are my mother and my brothers? Even on the cross, he gives his mother in kindness and compassion, but he gives his mother over to John and said, this is your son, this is your mother. It is because Jesus knows who he is and what his role is. So while he is to be respectful of his mother, and he is, he even follows her lead here, as we'll see in some ways. At the same time, his mother, Mary, needs to know that if Jesus is to be the Messiah, he also has to be her Messiah. And he is not just her son. He is also her savior. And he is God's son. And if Jesus is the Messiah, God's son, then he has to do things on his father's timeline, according to God. So he says, it's not the hour yet. It's not yet time for me to reveal my glory to all. John is setting this up here, actually. And Jesus says, it is not the hour yet. Later in the upper room, John 13, 1. Then John 17, 1. At the beginning of his high priestly prayer, it will say, the hour has come. Right before his crucifixion, his death, resurrection, that is when the hour has come. Here, this is just the beginning, not the hour yet. That'll come later. So Jesus here is setting things on his father's timeline, on his timeline. His mother is going to have to just trust him believe in him as her savior. And she does, actually. Goes to the servants, just do whatever he says. (laughs) Do whatever he tells you. So, what does Jesus do? Has the servants fill six big jars of water? These are stone jars, not earthen jars. Stone jars, which would do better at keeping water pure than an earthen clay jar. They're stone jars filled with 20, 30 gallons of water. They were there, importantly, for ceremonial washing. I think that's an important note. One, just keep in mind, the servant is serving up bath water. But also, just ceremonial washing water under, I think it's a hint to under the old covenant, under the traditions of the Jewish people. Jesus is going to come and say, we're going out with the old traditions, in with the wine that he provides. It's a sign of things are changing. A new kingdom is coming. So Jesus performs this miracle of turning water into wine. It wasn't a big display. It wasn't an obvious display, as we'll see, of his glory and his power. It was a subtle one. There's a couple things I wonder here. I wonder when actually the water changed. Like at what moment? There's a follow thing I wonder about is, how much courage did that servant have? Like when did the water change to wine? 
Regardless of when it changed, whether it was when the water was in the jar or when the water was in the cup that he was serving, regardless, that's a lot of faith, a lot of courage to take that cup and give it to the master of ceremonies and the master of the banquet and say, here you go. Have some bath water. So I'm impressed by it. I admire the courage of that servant. I don't know when exactly it changed, but we know it did change. And what does the master of the banquet say? This is the best stuff. Normally, normal practice was, especially in a days-long ceremony, that the groom would provide the best wine up front, and then once people were into their cups a little bit and their palate was not as discerning, then you bust out the cheap stuff. But here, he says, you saved the best for last, which is just a way of saying this wine that Jesus provided was the choice wine, the best wine. And what has happened? Jesus has saved this bridegroom. What would have been a moment of total shame, dishonor, a real crisis for the groom, Jesus has quietly stepped in and saved him. It was a subtle display of his glory and power. In fact, notice, not everybody even knows that Jesus did this. If you look, who gets credit for Jesus' work? The servant knew what had happened, the servants. Maybe there's a whole sermon there about Jesus first revealing himself to the servants. I don't know. But the servant knew what had happened. Not the master of the banquet, not the groom. Who gets credit for Jesus' work? The groom does. The one who was set up for shame and dishonor, guilt, is now honored, getting credit for Jesus' work. There's a gospel story there, isn't there? Jesus has done this to show his glory. How is his glory shown? In saving somebody from shame. And his glory is shown that he is the Lord of all creation. Read in chapter 1, all things were created through him. Now we see he can recreate anything, change from water to wine. It's not an accidental thing that it's wine. Jesus' first miracle involves wine. In the Old Testament, abundant wine was often listed as a sign of the coming kingdom of God. When God's kingdom comes, it'll come with an abundance of wine. There's several places where that's talked about. I think Jesus is telling us here, John's telling us here, Jesus brought a new age, a new age of glory, where the Lord of creation brings people from shame to honor. The wedding sign shows his glory. The temple sign shows his authority. So we go on to the next section here in verses 13 through 22. Just as that first sign of the wedding shows his glory, the second sign that Jesus will talk about here shows his authority. The temple sign shows his authority in verses 13 to 22. I'll read them. You read them with me. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple that will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus and his disciples are up north in Galilee, and they go down south to Jerusalem. Now, they go south, but the text says what? They went up to Jerusalem. Because wherever you are in Israel, you go up to Jerusalem. That's at the center. It's on the hills. Even though it might be latitude, you know, north or south, you always go up to Jerusalem just as you ascend the holy hill of the Lord. So they go up to Jerusalem for Passover. This is, as we know, it's the big one. This is the big festival of all festivals in the Jewish calendar. So many people would come from many miles away to come celebrate Passover at the temple in Jerusalem. If you know the temple layout, it had multiple courts in the temple. There's kind of the inner part, the Holy of Holies, and then the kind of the sanctuary where the priest could be. And then there was uh, the inner court where only male Israelites, male Jews were allowed. Then there was around that the court of women where only female Israelites could enter or male Israelites and then after that was the court of Gentiles, where non-Jews could enter. So there's a barrier at a couple places. In the court of Gentiles, in that outer ring, there were people who provided goods and services. They would sell cattle, sheep, birds, doves, for purchasing, buy them, and sacrifice them. Now, it makes sense they would provide this because remember, people are coming from many miles away from all sorts of different locations. Galilee area, but Sea of Galilee is about 90 miles to Jerusalem. So you don't want to take a bunch of cattle, sheep with you. It's a nice service. It's convenient to be able to buy that at the temple and bring your sacrifices for Passover. Same reason the money exchangers are there. People come from many different places with different kinds of coinage different kinds of currency, but there was one kind of currency that was accepted normally uh, in the temple, and it was expected and anticipated that you're going to go to the temple, you're going to pay a temple tax or an offering in the prescribed coinage. So you had money changers there and exchangers who would get you in the right currency. Those were sensible uh, services. So why did Jesus get angry? It's kind of the million-dollar question of this passage. What makes Jesus angry to the point that he's using a whip? Now, should be said, Jesus isn't going like full Indiana Jones and just whipping people. Like, don't have that image. Why does he use a whip? He's driving out the animals. It says specifically he's removing cattle and sheep. So he's not using the whip on people. This is not your justification to, I don't know, hit people with blunt instruments or anything like that, that. Don't look to Jesus there. He's using the whip to drive out the animals. And then he 
tells the, them to let the birds free. He flips over tables, scatters money. He's controlled, but he is angry. Why is Jesus angry? There's a couple different thoughts here. It could be that those who were doing these services, selling the animals and exchanging the money, they, they were charging exorbitant prices and gouging people. That's possible. But it's not explicitly stated in the text that that's what's happening. It's a possibility. Others note that the merchants were set up in the court of the Gentiles. That all this is taking place in the court of the Gentiles and thus distracting Gentiles from their worship. There's another parallel account of this. It, we're not sure. It could be actually that Jesus did this twice. Because in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's another account of Jesus clearing out the temple. But when does that happen? Towards the end of his earthly ministry, before his crucifixion, this happens right at the beginning of, the, of his ministry here in John. John places it at the beginning. So either John has taken that account and moved it up in his storytelling for theological or thematic purposes, that could be, or it just could be that Jesus did this twice, which is highly plausible that people didn't learn the first time and he had to do it again. Like, that makes sense to me. We're not sure, but it could be that this happened twice. But either way, there are other accounts of Jesus clearing the temple in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Mark eleven seventeen says, listen to this. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Which could speak to both realities that they were robbing people by their practices and they were precluding or excluding the nations from worshiping by setting up the market in the court of Gentiles. They were not fully letting in the nations to come and worship. That may be going on, but I think at the most fundamental level, Jesus is just upset that they've turned a house of worship into a house of commerce. Like at a basic level, that's it. And that's what John says here. You've made this into a marketplace. Even if you had good intentions at the beginning, even if you thought this was the right thing to do, look at what you've done. You've turned a house of prayer, a house of worship. Instead of God's house being a place consumed with the worship of God, they made the temple a place consumed with money making. You've replaced true religion and worship with commerce. Passion for God replaced with love of money. It's why he's angry. It's why he clears the temple. Which brings up another question. Who is he to do this? Who is Jesus to come into the temple and tell people what to do. The disciples make the right connection. They think back to Psalm 69:9, zeal for God's house would consume him. And they actually make the link. Oh, this is a messianic thing. The Psalm said he would have a zeal for God's house. Note what Jesus says about his right to do it. He calls the temple my father's house. The Jewish people, Israelites, collectively thought of God as their father. He's the father of Israel. But they didn't say personally, God is my father. That wasn't common for Old Testament Israelites. So when Jesus comes and says, this is 
my father's house, he is making the claim, I am the son of God. This house belongs to my father. Because it belongs to my father, it belongs to me. Jesus is saying, I have the authority to do this as God's son. But the temple leaders want to know, by what authority do you do this? So they ask for a sign. Perform some miracle. Show us that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Show us that you have the authority to do this. So Jesus says, I'll give you a sign. You're going to have to wait for it, but you'll see it. Destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Nobody understood what he was talking about at first. What do you mean? It took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to rebuild it in three days. Nobody got what he was talking about. His disciples later, after his death and resurrection, will go, oh, that's it. So mentioning Harry Potter again, not to spoil anything, but if you've read the whole series, you know that some things happen later that make you kind of re-examine the whole story, especially one character. Or if you know the end of the story, it changes the way you read the whole thing, and then you can go back and say, oh, that's what was going on. Like a good book, a good book series will have that kind of twist where the ending will clarify what comes before. And this is exactly what happens. See, Harry Potter is a great analogy for the life of Jesus. And the rent. I won't go. The storyline of Jesus' life, understanding what comes later, you go, oh, that's what was happening in the beginning. The disciples make that connection. But at the time, nobody understood. What is going on? Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about him making two huge claims here. The first claim, I am the house of God. Jesus is saying, I am the temple. I am the place where God's presence dwells. Huge claim. If you want to know how to connect to God, where worship happens, where heaven meets earth, I'm Jacob's ladder. We learned last week. I'm the temple. I'm the place where God's presence dwells. And then the second theological claim that Jesus is making here, I am the resurrection. Crucify me, destroy the temple of my body, and I will raise it up again because Jesus has the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. You want a sign showing who Jesus is? Look to the resurrection. And I think that's true then, it's true now. It is the great sign of who Jesus is. Is he God's son? Is he the Messiah? Look to the resurrection. Look at the resurrection. It is the essential, the great sign, the ultimate sign of who Jesus is. Uh, I'll teach you a Latin phrase. I love this phrase. I think it's Latin. Sine qua non. S-I-N-E-Q-U-A-N-O-N. Sine qua non. It is the essential thing. Literally means without which it could not be. The sine qua non of something is the thing that if you don't have this, you don't have anything else. It's the essential thing, the essential attribute. What is the essential sign of Jesus and who he is? It's the resurrection. If you don't have the resurrection, you don't have anything else. If you don't have the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. If you don't have the resurrection, then don't follow this. But if the resurrection is true, if Jesus was actually resurrected from the grave and took up his life again and lived forever, if the resurrection is true, 
then you must follow him and must worship him. It proves that he has ultimate authority. The essential sign, the resurrection, that's what Jesus points to. Here's the sign that you all need to look at, the resurrection to come. It's the sign, the temple sign that shows his authority. Lastly, let's briefly look at verses 23 to 25, just a couple seconds here. We read that Jesus performed other signs in the presence of others. We don't know what they are. We just know he performed some other signs. And these public signs show his wisdom. The wedding sign showed his glory. The temple sign showed his authority. These public signs show his wisdom. They show his wisdom. Look at verse 23, verses 23 to 25. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. John says at the end of this book, Jesus did a lot of things. I don't have time, don't have the page space to record them all. So here's what he's going to summarize. He did a bunch of other signs. We don't know what they are, but he did them. We can assume what they are, healings and that kind of thing. We perform these signs, and it seems like things are starting off with a bang. Things are going swimmingly. Lots of people believing, lots of people following. Isn't this just awesome? So why not just claim the throne now? Right? Everybody's believing. It's going off well. Well, as Jesus said earlier, it's not the hour. It's too soon for Jesus to take his throne. There is a danger in taking leadership too early. Taking on leadership before you're ready for it. And there's a reason in sports and you know, football or some other team sport, freshmen aren't often the captains, right? Not ready for it. Too soon. You don't want to take the throne too early. In Jesus' case, it's not him who isn't ready. It's the followers who aren't ready. And Jesus knows it. He knows that all these people... We're believing in him now will be the same crowd that later will cry, crucify him. It's not the hour. It's not the time. John says Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew people. He knew what was in the heart. We aren't very good often at seeing what's inside people, and none of us can truly, truly know what's in the heart of other people. We don't know what's in our own heart most of the time. So the scripture says, this ability to know what's going on in people, to know the heart, that is ability that only God has. People look at Saul and say, that is an impressive, tall man. He is attractive and charismatic. Let's make him king. God knows what's in the heart. So Solomon, when he's praying, will say in 1 Kings 8.39, you alone know every human heart. Scripture says God alone knows every human heart. And now John says Jesus knows what's in every human heart. He has the wisdom of God. He knows people. He knows they are fickle. It's a funny word if you don't know what that word means. Say it with me, fickle. 
I like that word. It's just fun to say. What it means is people aren't always trustworthy and they change their mind often. People are fair weather fans. We're all cheese fans this morning. We don't have any complaints until they lose in the next round, potentially, and then we say, hey, I knew it all along. People are fickle. They change often. Jesus knows this. He knows it's not time. Don't miss this. Jesus knows what's in every human heart. He knows people are fickle, and yet he goes on anyways. He knows what's going to happen. And yet he loves and continues his mission. These public signs show his wisdom. So what do we learn from this chapter? What do we learn about Jesus from this? Quickly, I just want to give you three truths about Christ from this passage. First, first truth about Christ. Jesus has compassion for people. The bridegroom at the wedding in Cana was in a bad spot. But Jesus had compassion on him. Just think about this, how, how in many ways it's such a small miracle. This is Jesus' first miracle. It's his coming out party. He's beginning his work as the Messiah. And it's a small personal miracle. Like the, the fate of Israel is not at stake in whether this guy provides enough wine or not. Right? It is a personal thing. Just one guy who's about to be shamed. One party that was about to go wrong. It's not a national crisis. And yet there, God shows his power and his glory through Jesus Christ, showing us that God is a personal God, that he doesn't reserve all of his miracles only for the big stuff, only for the national crises. God doesn't reserve his miracles only for those. God provides miracles for small people. He has compassion on individuals. Jesus stepped into a personal crisis to bring honor out of shame. He has compassion for people. Second, Jesus has zeal for his father. Why did he clear the temple? It's not because he was feeling particularly grumpy that day. It's not because he needed quiet time and he was sick of all the noise. Jesus cleared the temple because he has a passion for his father. He isn't indifferent about worship of God. Jesus has zeal for the worship of the father. He is not indifferent about what we do here on Sunday mornings, about our worship. Jesus is passionate that his God the Father, that God himself be worshipped and praised. So we don't come into this place on Sunday morning feeling indifferent or bored or apathetic about worship and prayer. We know that the Jesus we follow is passionate about the worship of God and zealous for his Father's will. Third, we see also that Jesus is the Lord of life. The power to change creation the power to rise from the dead. He is the Lord of life. And the greatest sign is his resurrection. What about application? So as we close here, the three points of application, three points of grace for us, I'll actually ask you three questions. First, will we humbly admit our need for grace? There's a reason I ask this, and it's personal as I was studying this passage. Will we humbly admit our need for grace? Because I'll tell you what happened in my own study of this. And my, I'm just thinking through application as I was going through the wedding sign in Cana. And I was thinking about, am I like Jesus? 
Do I have compassion for other people the way he has compassion and ministers here for this bridegroom? And I started thinking about that. And then it occurred to me by God's grace that I'm actually doing it wrong. That's a wonderful application. Do we have compassion for others? Good application. Better application is, do we realize we're the ones in need of grace? I put myself in the place of Jesus in the story. That's not who I am in the story of water changing to wine. I'm the bridegroom who had messed up, failed my responsibility, and was about to suffer shame and dishonor, maybe even be indebted because I didn't provide the way I should. And then Jesus came and I got credit for his work. First point of application is, I'm the one in need of grace and mercy. Just like that bridegroom. Will we humbly admit our need for him? Second, will we passionately pursue the worship of God? Why do you come to church? For those of you who came today, you're the real passionate ones. You're the zealous types, right? We have all sorts of varied reasons we come to church. All sorts of varied reasons we might call ourselves disciples and followers. But at the core of it, let's make sure we are passionate about worshiping our Father. It's what Jesus is passionate about. Third question for application, this is the question that actually runs throughout the entire chapter. It's the question of, will we believe the signs of Jesus? Will we genuinely believe the signs of Jesus? I told you this is a theme that runs throughout the chapter. After every sign, there's the question of who believed. After turning water to wine, John makes a note that his disciples believed in him. He turned water to wine, his disciples believed. After the encounter at the temple, the text notes that Jesus' followers believed. John 2, 22. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They believed. And then John finishes the chapter with a note about unbelief. Or at least implied unbelief. Many people, after all of his public signs, believed in Jesus. But Jesus knows, eh, I'm not going to entrust myself to them yet. So it raises the question. Hey, the disciples believed at first. They believed at the end. Others believed along the way, but not all stayed because people are fickle. So the question is brought before you. Will you believe the signs of Jesus? Will you endure in your belief until the end? When you look at your own life and you don't see all the signs there of God's love for you and you're wondering, does God still care? Does God still love? Who is Jesus? Is he worth following? We look back at the signs. believe Jesus is the one he said he is. The signs of Jesus prove he is God's son and our savior. Will you pray with me? My father and God, we pray that you would give us genuine belief, enduring belief, Faith not built on present circumstances or changing whims, but faith built on 
the person of Jesus Christ and who he is undoubtedly. He is the one who can change water from wine. He is the one who has authority over worship, authority over life and resurrection. And he is the one who knows us, who knows our hearts and how wayward they can be and yet loves us all the same. So Lord, grant us faith, belief, and to the end that we may have life in the name of Jesus. Amen.